Well, welcome everybody one more time to City Life. Y'all can get excited. Y'all can get excited. I don't know who it was that dropped the, I know that's right. I think it was Nate Nowatney. Where you at, Nate? Did you drop that? Yeah, I know your voice. But I'm, a, I'm the youth pastor here, so I'm used to a crowd that's energized maybe even more than it should be energized. So if you're going to drop some amens, that's cool. I can roll with that. So I know that's right. Some preach preachers, any of that. It's all good. But if you're a visitor tonight, let me welcome you one more time to City Life. I am the youth pastor. Pastor Fred's on his annual vacation. He's about to come back like 10 shades darker next week after being at the beach for two weeks. So we're excited for his return. But we're also, if you're visiting, we're in a series called Rescued. And we paired this series with a challenge for city lifers that are in the house to hand out 10 reach cards every week for 10 weeks. And every time you do that, you drop your name out there in a, again, I don't know what David was saying, bucket, receptacle, right? You drop it in there, and after the 10 weeks, you draw, we will draw a name, and that person will win, like, a big old party. I think it's for, like, 10 people. We'll say 20 just to raise the bar. Maybe I'm wrong. But at Pelicans, which is the shaved ice place right around the corner, it's great. But uh, also, this whole series, Rescued, has been tied to movies that involve rescues. So last week, we tied in Grand Torino. Week before that, we tied in Last of the Mohicans. The week before that was Castaway. But before we get into our movie for tonight, just as a moment of participation, what are some one-liners from movies that are, like, timeless? Might be from a movie 10 years ago, but you still say it in, like, everyday conversation, or it still sticks with you. I'll be back, right? Yeah, Arnold's got a Hall of Fame. I'll be back, hasta la vista, uh, get through the chopper, it's not a tumor, right? You just go all day. Anybody else? Wait, what? Too close for missiles on switching the guns. We can do Arnold all night. Raise your hand, raise your hand. <laughs> Warren. Make my day. Say hello to my little friend. <laughs> Tyler. You feeling lucky? I am your father. David was about to jump on that. <laughs> Josh. Do you feel lucky? Yup. Jenna. Inconceivable. Another one with the Hall of Fame. Inconceivable. My name is Inigo Montoya, right? Uh, as you wish. You could have fun storming the castle. You can't handle the truth. Yup. Tara. I'm tired of these snakes on the plane. With some words left out. Yep. <laughs> Thank you for editing that. Go ahead. Run, forest, run, right? Life is like a box of chocolates. <laughs> I'm talking to you. And I heard yo, Adrian. <laughs> Vote for Pedro. Yup. Am I missing any? I see a hand. Stella. Stella. <laughs> right? We could go all night to infinity and beyond. There's no crying in baseball, right? Just you go for all night. But uh, tonight, what about in Lord of the Rings? You shall not pass, right? Like, we can apply that to all kinds of stuff. Kids apply that to their exams, right? People apply that to Kobe Bryant because he never passes. People still quote, it's been quoted in other movies, but it's actually from a scene of rescue in that movie. But before we get to Lord of the Rings, let me ask another question. If you took the Gospels and you took every word that's in red that Jesus said and you made sure that it was said like that in the movie, as you're walking out of the movie, what are the one-liners that would stick with you? When you read through the Gospels, some of those quotes that while you were walking out of the theater picking popcorn out of your teeth, you'd still be thinking about it. It would resonate. What's that? Father, forgive them. Pretty much anything on the cross. It is finished. Yup. That's what you just said? Yup. 
The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I come to give life and life abundant. There's so many quotes. But I want to read Luke 19, verse 10 tonight. Because some theologians argue that in the Gospels, this is one of the key verses. They definitely say in the commentary I was reading that it's a key verse or the key verse in the Gospel of Luke. But before we even get to verse 10, I want to read this story. It's the story of Zacchaeus. If you turn to Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. And I'm going to read it real quick. If you haven't made it there yet, it's the third gospel. If you don't make it in the next 10 seconds, you can pretend you're there. But it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. That's the verse 10 that they point to, that the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. Now if you keep reading in Luke, you'll see that this was the last personal encounter recorded in that gospel before Jesus went into Jerusalem to be crucified. So we know that that was intentional. For Jesus, that this was a, an intentional meeting. And we know that God inspired Luke to finish this passage with that verse 10, where Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and save what is lost. Jesus is saying the Son of Man was sent on a rescue mission, right? The people that were there, they kind of had it twisted. They thought that the gospel meant that benefits would come to those who had earned it and those that deserved it, when really the gospel says that grace comes to those who couldn't earn it, and are broken. You look at the passage before this, if you go rewind in the movie of the Gospels, the passage before this is a, uh, a man lost in poverty and blindness, and Jesus rescues him. It's a juxtaposition to Zacchaeus, who's filthy rich but still lost, and Jesus rescues him. And if you were to rewind even further, before the, the blind beggar, you get the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, maybe you've heard the story, maybe you haven't. He comes to Jesus, and he wants to follow Jesus. He wants to be his disciple. And it says Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. But he looked at him, and he saw his heart, and he realized that there was an idol in this young man's life, which was his wealth. So Jesus says, lay that down and then follow me. But the young man couldn't do it, and he goes away saddened. It's a sad story, and Jesus says in that passage, it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Right, so seemingly impossible. But then I love that just a chapter or two later, you get the story of Zacchaeus, where you see a rich man finding salvation. We're getting a glimpse of how the impossible happens, right, through grace and through Jesus Christ. Because you look at the Great Commission, you look at our rescue mandate, it seems impossible. It seems a pretty big ordeal to go out into all the world, into all nations and make disciples. You look at the breadth of that commission, and you look at the condition of our culture, and it can seem impossible. But you look at this passage, and this is the impossible happening, according to Jesus. So there are two factors I want to look at in this story that show us how what seems impossible 
in terms of our rescue mandate can happen. And then I want to finish with what essentially is the game changer. But tonight, to start, I just want to look at this phrase. It says, Jesus was passing through. He was passing through Jericho. He was on his way from point A to point B. Point B was Jerusalem, where he was going to be crucified and die for mankind. Now, one of the, the areas of my personality that I've had to work on is I'm a very point A to point B person. Like, when I am focused on something, I'm focused on something. Part of it is because at the same time, I'm like partially ADD. So I know if I get distracted, I'm not going to come back to what I was working on. But I'm very point A to point B. And what am I focused on usually as my point B? A sermon, a service, getting a gallon of milk, right? I'm just focused. I'm in the zone because I got to go do what I was, I'm called to do. But you look at Jesus, what was his point B? Rescuing all of mankind, right? Earning salvation for us on the cross. And yet his radar for rescue was so turned on that he could see a borderline midget in a tree in his periphery, right? He would have been a beast that wears Waldo because any crowd, any chaos, he could, oh, that dude right there needs to be reached and he needs to be rescued. So the question is for people like me, right, how do I reach people better if I'm a point A to point B person? Because you look at Jesus and his earthly ministry from beginning to end, Jesus always found purpose in the place where he was. It's a common thing. No matter what he was doing, reading, praying, eating a meal, chilling with the disciples, he always found a purpose. He always found somebody that needed to be reached. And again, how, how can we do this better? And quite simply, I love the, the phrase in this passage where it says he looked up. He looked up. Because again, when I'm going from point A to point B, I can be absorbed in an email about an uprising charity, uh, another the umpteenth tweet about leadership from some pastor that I just see on my Twitter feed. But I once saw a tweet from a, a group called the Leadership Collective which said 15 minutes in the lobby is worth as much as 15 hours of sermon study. And when you reflect on that, you have to at least consider the possibility because we can get it backwards so often. We want to plan big events, right? We want to, to reach people. We want to do big events that get headlines. We want to do things from the stage that will earn applause. Maybe we want to do something in our day that we can post in a status and get some likes, right? We want to do extravagant big things. And guess what? God wants to do that too. God wants to spark revivals. He wants to see stadiums filled with people worshiping him. But just as important to God is when we do small, seemingly insignificant things with extravagant love. Like that person you see in the lobby before church walking up. And you maybe never have seen them, introducing yourself, welcoming them, maybe introducing yourself to somebody at the grocery store you've seen again and again. Seemingly insignificant, but so meaningful when you do it with love. If you start looking at that one person you talk to, that one person you reach as that one sheep that Jesus left the 99 for, you begin to realize, oh, maybe no person is insignificant. Maybe no thing I do in love is truly insignificant. So before you reach the region. Why don't you reach that one person that God's put in your world, right? Before you fill a stadium with homeless and, and feed them all, why don't you buy lunch for that one person on the corner, right? Before you go and build that orphanage in Africa, maybe those kids whose parents just got divorced next door need somebody to take them out to pizza or just have a conversation with them, show them some hope, right? And maybe nobody sees it. I love that in Lord of the Rings, there's a quote by Aragorn that says, deeds will not be less valiant because they're unpraised. If you look at the Gospel of John, 
He says at the end that if you were to fit everything Jesus did in that gospel, like you wouldn't be able to. It would just be unending, right? So there are things Jesus did that aren't recorded in the gospel, and maybe they, they never were recorded. But it doesn't make it any less meaningful, valiant. And those people that were rescued, guess what? It still matters to them. Jesus always found purpose in the place where he was. We talked about this a little bit last week when we were talking about reaching our home, right? Our call to go isn't always a call to leave. But he wasn't primarily focused, Jesus, on the cross over the horizon. He was always on a mission regardless of the season, regardless of the hour. Now, being a minister to young people, to, to even people that are older in college, young professionals, sometimes, really at any age, let's be real, but they'll come to you and they'll be like, I know what God's calling, I know what his purpose is for my life, but I really just feel like I'm in a season where I'm just on a treadmill, or like I'm in the season of a pause button, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do, I don't know what I'm even doing here, like I, I just feel like depressed, right? They, they don't know what's going on. But again, you look at Jesus, his mission, his purpose was to go to the cross. But everywhere he went, every breath he took, he realized that he was on a mission. That's the same mission that we've adopted, right? Every, everywhere you go to eat, every errand you run, you're on a mission. Before God maybe hits you with that giant purpose, you can be faithful with what's in front of you. Where God's called you to reach, your home like we talked last week. Because again, when you really zoom out, we're all passing through life. We're all eventually going to get to point B, which is heaven. But we can't get a perspective where, where maybe our calling is over the horizon or we're waiting to get to heaven and then we sit back. We can't sit back on our own personal shire, right, like the hobbits. We can't let our consecration, our, our sanctification, our purification, any of that lead to isolation. Because it can happen if you don't remind yourself that, hey, I'm on a mission. Even now, maybe I'm not walking in the greater purpose I know God has for my life, but I know I'm on a mission today. We have to step out, reach out, and rescue. Frodo was asked to step out of his comfort zone, right? Because he's a little hobbit dude. He's called to go out, carry this ring, do stuff he doesn't even understand. And how many others, if we were in charge of choosing who was going to carry the ring, we would have chose somebody else. I would have chose, what is it, Legolas, uh, even Gimli, because he's jacked, even if he's short. But, you know, pick one of these other guys who seem semi-intelligent and muscular and, like, they could actually do something if somebody came at them, right, to get the ring. I would not have picked Frodo. And it reminds me of, of in Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 7, where it says, Samuel, just a little background, Samuel's going to pick the next king. And he's going through Jesse's sons. And God says to him, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, this is talking about looking at character and looking at integrity as he was going to choose the next king. But sometimes we can swing it the opposite way, and we can begin to profile people who are lost. Like, I don't know if you've ever said it, but, you know, you look at some people and you're like, man, if we could just get them into one worship service, they'd be, like, crying at the altar. He'd be ready to go. And then you look at somebody else and we're like, man, you would have to move mountains for God to reach that person. And we begin to rank sins like there's, like they're value meals. They're small, medium, large, and biggie size, right? But God looks at everybody, and each person is somebody he died for. When I go from point A to point B every day, I've never passed somebody who Jesus didn't die for, Jesus didn't want to reach, and he didn't need a rescue.
factor two, when you look at this story, is you see that just as there was potential in Frodo, just as there was potential in David, Jesus always sees the potential in people. Jesus saw potential in people around him. And this can get tricky, this can get murky, and this can get muddied when you begin to talk about potential in people. Because sometimes pastors, people will tell you that if you just got a new wineskin, right, or you got a new paradigm, a new way of thinking, you thought higher of yourself, you aimed higher, then you know what, God's got favor for you, God's got blessing for you, and and God's got more for you. As if if, if we just pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and thought better, we might have that potential in us. But reality is in the Bible, it doesn't really ever say we think too high or yeah, too highly of ourselves. No, backwards. It never really says we think too lowly of ourselves. It says things like we're fallen, right? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? It says things like we're broken in sin. But there's another reality in the Bible that God's grace transforms us. You know, 2 Corinthians 5:17 says that through his grace, we're new creations. We're transformed. He puts potential in us that becomes kinetic and is set in motion by grace, right? Grace cleanses us, it calls us, and it equips us, but it's all a gift of God. Every single bit of it is God's gift. But you read the Gospels, and it's hard to say that that Jesus didn't have some kind of faith in the potential that the disciples had, because you look at the the Great Commission at the end of Mark, the the signs and wonders that he said were going to follow these disciples as they went out into the world, it sounds like a profile of like a mutant from the X-Men, right? They're going to speak in other tongues. They're going to lay hands on people and they're going to be healed. They're going to be casting demons out. You're like, whoa, this is, this is a big deal. You read John 14, 12, and he says that anyone who believes in him will do the same works he has done and even greater works. That's a big deal. And who does he choose? Well, if you look at 1 Corinthians 1, it says God chose those things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, And use them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. Come on, if you were to look at the Gospels, there were few people more despised than Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was a bad man. And you might say, whoa, 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 hold up. My cousin works for H&R Block, right? What are you trying to say? But you got to understand the times. A tax collector in Jesus' time was, was frowned upon, especially if you were Jewish. Because this man was a man who not only betrayed his countrymen through cooperating with an oppressive Roman occupation as their tax collector. This was a man who regularly cheated his countrymen out of their already meager livings by taking his cut from the interest. This man was hated. People love to hate this guy. You got to understand too, it says he was the chief tax collector in Jericho. Taxes were collected in three places, Capernaum, Jericho, and Jerusalem. So if he's the chief tax collector in Jericho, he's one of like the top three dudes, the the kingpin of this, this arm of the tax collecting business. He was rich and he was well off. But when you look at characters, bad characters, people we despise in movies, a lot of times they're big, they're intimidating. You don't look any further than Darth Vader, right? Six foot seven in that suit. But then you, you think about it, it's almost just as intimidating when you know somebody would stab you in the back and they're like eye level with your back. Like, what is his name? Tommy DeVito from Goodfellas, Joe Pesci's character. What am I, a clown to you? Am I here to amuse you, right? That dude was short, and he, he was still intimidating. And if you were to make him next level ugly and despicable looking, you would have Gollum, right? Because Gollum, he's not good looking. Clearly, you might be able to guess he's the guy on the left if you haven't seen the movie. But he is the recipient in the books and the movies of so much mercy 
again and again and again. Like if you've read those books, if you've watched those movies, tell me you didn't say countless times. I would have killed him right there, right? I would have just killed him in that moment. He would have, the thorn would have been removed from my side. And I wouldn't have to worry about this treacherous little dude. But again, he's shown grace and mercy again and again. Frodo, he's dragged down by the weight of the ring and he sees his own pain amplified in Gollum. And he begins to realize, if I give up on Gollum, I'm giving up on, on me. There's kind of this idea in Frodo that there's got to be some kind of providence at work here. There's got to be some kind of redemption. There's some kind of purpose for this suffering, and that hope keeps Frodo going. You know, all these opportunities to kill Gollum, it kind of reminds me, you go back again to the books of Samuel, where David had an opportunity again and again to kill Saul when Saul was trying to kill him. Caught Saul asleep, literally with his pants down, and his friends were like, yo, kill him right now. But David understood that, that God's providence was ruling over all this. He said, God has anointed him as king, far be it from me to kill him. And in life, there might be situations, there might be people where you might say, I don't know how any good could come of this. But come on, Gollum is a character that reminds us not only of God's grace, but his great providence. Because it's actually Gollum who plays a huge role at the end of that movie in terms of the victory. See, some people like Gollum, they don't respond to their opportunity for redemption. But everybody deserves an opportunity to be rescued. Because you see, Frodo, again, he saw himself in Gollum. We can never get to a point where we look at somebody who is still in a life of sin and we don't see ourselves in them. Because you got to realize, for me, for you, we were all at one point lost in sin. Right now, if Jesus' grace wasn't available, I would still be stuck in sin. And we got to realize that applies to everybody. That person we're struggling to forgive, that teammate who cusses like a sailor, that neighbor who keeps giving us the cold shoulder, that coworker who just shut us down for the umpteenth time when we were trying to share Jesus with them, right? Those are what we might call those people. But you got to realize Zacchaeus was one of those people, and Jesus came to die for those people. People we might write off. You see, we don't fail when God calls us to reach somebody and share the gospel with them, and they respond with a cold shoulder. When we fail is when God calls us, when God calls me to share the gospel with somebody, and I get timid, I punk out, and I get passive, and I don't do it. But if we share the gospel with somebody and they don't respond, that's not on us. And you see, to Zacchaeus' credit, he responds. See, somebody told him Jesus was coming. Somebody rescued him whether they saw the fruit of it or not. And we don't know how it is we found out. And really, you might even ask, why would he want to see Jesus? But if you look back at Luke 5, that's when Jesus called Levi, also known as Matthew, who was a tax collector. And being so high up, he might have heard of this. And he might have heard some of the religious people of his day saying, oh, this Jesus guy, he's a friend of tax collectors. They were trying to knock Jesus, but for him, that might have perked his ears. But like, all right, I got to see who this Jesus guy was. You never know the reason that somebody you might be so close to writing off is interested in what you have to offer. You never know. You can never write these people off. You know, to his credit, he responds. But the only problem is, right, he's short. He can't see over everybody. And see, that's another sermon for another time. But when we write somebody off and we just turn back inwards to whatever we're dealing with, sometimes we can be that crowd that they can't see over. They're trying to see Jesus, but we've turned the cold shoulder to them and said, yeah, you're Zacchaeus, right? You're one of those people. But again, back to the story, he's short. I love 
going to concerts. How many of y'all like to go to concerts? See artists perform, like at the Norva. The National Enrichment is cool too. I like the National Enrichment because the, the floor is slanted. Because I'm only like 5'9". The Norva, you get stuck behind somebody. Always, like Murphy's Law, right? The one guy who's got shoulders as broad as LeBron, and he's like tall as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. One guy in his entire spot, he's going to end up in front of me, right? And this is Zacchaeus' life every day. So where some people might say, oh, man, well, I'm just going to hang out. Zacchaeus is like, no, nah, I'm going to run ahead. Because he wanted to see who Jesus was. He wanted to run after the promise that Jesus had. Now, in our culture, you don't see a lot of grown men running, right? Unless Nate's trying to race somebody in a 40-yard dash or there's competition involved or, or there's something of value on the other end. Like they just dropped Call of Duty like 19, the PS5 just came out, or the new Jordans, right? You might see some men run for that. But you're not going to see a lot of grown men sprinting. I mean, look around. How many men in this church have you seen in like a dead sprint? <laughs> not many, right? But even in that culture, you rewind to the time of Jesus, it was even more rare because they wore tunics back then. For them to run, they had to lift up their tunic, and it would show their legs, which was considered shameful. But Zacchaeus didn't care. Zacchaeus ran. Zacchaeus broke a sweat. And what Zacchaeus didn't realize is while he was running towards Jesus, God the Father was already running towards him. You know, again, you go back a couple chapters, Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son. But we don't know if he ran, walked, rode a bicycle home. We don't know what happened. But it says while he was still far away, that his father ran to him. Right, while Zacchaeus was still far away, even on this tree limb, the best he could do was still far from Christ. God was running towards him. He ran after that promise of life. And he, he again, this is, this is crazy. This is, again, like Joe Pesci's character from Goodfellas in a suit, running down the street, breaking a sweat in a crowd, and then climbing a tree. It's, it's weird. Like, he's, he's forgot any cool, any swag like David was talking about. He kicked to the curb, right? He just wants what Jesus had to offer. Right? Like, let's be serious. When I'm at these concerts, I had a chance to meet, like, Dustin Kensrue. David was there. He can attest. He was, like, the lead singer of Thrice. He now leads worship out at Mark Driscoll's church. But when I meet somebody like that, I get tongue-tied, man. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, you're a great song or singwriter. You know, like, I mean, I, mean, I love your faith. I mean, I, you know, you just, your tongue gets tied. I don't know what to say. Like, you lose your cool. When you're around somebody you love or your wife calls, right? I could be with my boys talking about the game last night. Yeah, dog, that was great. You see LeBron scored 40. And then my wife calls. Hey, babe. Yeah, ba bed, bath, and beyond at 2 o'clock? Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. Love you. Kisses, right? And it's like, yeah, man, what's up? Because when you're around somebody you love, you just ditch your cool. You don't care, right? It's the same with Jesus. You don't come to Jesus cool, swagged out to receive his grace. When I come at worship, man, I stand in the front for, for one reason is, again, I'm, I feel like I'm partially ADD. I'm in the back. I'm going to be looking at all the backs of your heads, looking at your hairstyle, look what you're wearing. I got to be in the front row for that, but also because I'm a crier. Like, <laughs> I don't need people being distracted by me, like, weeping next to them or something. We used to have, was it Bob Isabel? He was the weeping prophet. You can call me, like, Juice, the weeping worshiper, right? <laughs> so, like, I... I I don't try to stay cool in worship. And, and again, if there's like Bob Isabel were to come to prophesy tomorrow, I would ditch whatever I'm doing and I would find a way to be there. Because again, I just want to know Jesus and I want to know Jesus more. And again, 20-year-old Juice would look at that and be like, yo, is that worth it? <laughs> you making a fool of yourself crying, you're in the front row, everybody can see you, is that worth it? But you know what it is? You know, there's a rescue invitation that we include every week. That in our rescue mandate, there's a rescue invitation for every person. 
Again, you've never walked past anybody that Jesus didn't die for and that wasn't called to be reached out to and rescued by the blood of Jesus. Never. Anybody. So that means every person in here, there's a rescue invitation extended to you. But you know, Jesus said that the road to destruction is wide. Some translations say spacious. And I, this road in Jericho was probably wide and spacious. Again, this is a big city. This is probably the main thoroughfare because Jesus said he was just passing through. And there were a lot of people on this road. And a lot of them were content to just kind of look over somebody's shoulder and catch a glimpse of Jesus as he was passing by. A lot of people who saw him but never really knew him. A lot of people who might have heard what he had to say, but they never took it. They never applied it. They never followed him. And, you know, that was my testimony for decades. I went to church. I saw Jesus. I saw his presence in the church moving amongst the people around me. But I never took it, applied it. I never followed him. I was on that wide road just hanging out. But you know what? Jesus says that the, the path to life is narrow. And it, I think one translation says treacherous. Probably a lot like that tree trunk that Zacchaeus climbed up. Probably a lot like that thin branch he had to crawl out on to see Jesus. But you see, his desire to see Jesus was surpassed by the fact Jesus wanted to see him. Right? He says, Zacchaeus. You know, sometimes people call your name and my brother-in-law, his name's Chad. Dad rhymes with Chad. So he's everywhere and he's like, what? What? Like just thinking people are calling out, but nothing rhymes with Zacchaeus. And he's in a tree, so ain't nobody behind him, right? So he knows Jesus is talking to him. And I'm sure he's just preparing himself mentally for whatever four-letter words and insults that he's used to coming at him because he's a tax collector. We're going to come at him. But Jesus read his thoughts, and he extends an invitation to Zacchaeus. And it's interesting. It's, it's kind of, <laughs> you, you read this and you realize Jesus was a bachelor, right? Because bachelors, what do they do? They invite themselves over. I used to do that to Mark McAllister all the time. He had a wife and a kid. They were just trying to have a happy family. And I lived like maybe a mile and a half away. And I'd be like, Mark, the wizards are on tonight. I'm coming over and I'm going to eat whatever you have left over from like last week. Right? And I had to pay that forward, you know, when Cord was around. And now he's at Wave College, but he used to come in and he had open door rights. You know, he could walk up to my refrigerator and see what was left over from dinner last night. But this is funny, sorry, that's just me reflecting, because you look at Jesus, right? <laughs> you look at Jesus, and he essentially just invites himself over. He says, look, we must do this. We got to do it today, and we got to do it immediately. But there's also because there's a sense of urgency there. Again, Pastor Fred has hit on this fact that our urgency should match that of Jesus. Jesus knew he was going to be hanging on a cross in a matter of days. So he's like, look, we need to do this today immediately, come on down, and Zacchaeus comes down, forget the words that's used in the NIV, but essentially in a moment, immediately, because again, he wanted to know Jesus. See, even when we climb that tree to see Jesus, Zacchaeus, he hadn't repented, he hadn't broken down and, and began to worship Jesus, but Jesus still called him. He hadn't made a full 180 spiritually, but Jesus was still going to die for him. Zacchaeus was like the prodigal who had run, started running home. He got to the top of that branch, but there was still a big gap between him and Jesus. Again, in that story of the prodigal son, it says he was still a long way off when the father ran to him. Jesus was going to die for Zacchaeus whether he climbed that tree or not. That's what's so special. You know, you look at Romans, it says that Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. It's crazy to reflect on. It's crazy. You know, Zacchaeus, 
He sweat in this tree, but Jesus went up and bled on a tree, right? Zacchaeus climbed a tree, but Jesus was nailed to a tree. <laughs> Zacchaeus found life in a tree. Jesus died in a tree so that we could have life. So come on, if I could have the worship team come up, I just want to close with, with that rescue invitation. As, as they come up, if everybody could even just stand. Because there is a rescue invitation in this place that applies to every single person. Jesus is saying, look, I don't care if you're at the base of the tree. I don't care if you're in, in the road just looking over somebody's shoulder. I'm calling your name tonight. And he's got life for you and life abundant. He's come to seek. He's come to save. So if that's you tonight, we just have everybody bow their heads and close their eyes. If that's you, and maybe you have my testimony where you've spent time in the church. You've been in church and out of church more times than you can count. But you've heard, but you've never applied. And you've seen, but you've never truly followed. Come on, there's, there's grace for you tonight that calls you out, that equips you to follow Christ. So if that's you tonight, I would just ask, as we're going to go back into worship, but just in this moment, if that's you, just to raise your hand where you're at. Because God wants to move in your life. And God has grace for you. Come on. Thanks. Thanks for that moment of boldness. Thanks for that moment of boldness. We're going to have people on the side to pray as we go back into worship. But before we do that, I want to talk to the church too. Because Jesus, he went out on that tree. And he died for us. The cross. The least we can do is go out on some limbs and try to reach some people. See, in evangelism, we too are called to run when others walk. We're called to go out on some limbs. And you know what? When we do that, it's God who's forever faithful to close the deal. It's God whose grace does the saving. But you know, before that saving happens, sometimes there's some seeking involved. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Before anybody's going to save, they have to seek out those that need that grace. Again, you look at Frodo, Frodo was asked to step out, out of his comfort zone, to take some risks, even risk his life. And when I read Lord of the Rings for the first time as a senior in high school, I was kind of upset at the ending. I don't know if you've, you've read the books or seen the movies, but he's carrying this ring, his job is to destroy it, he gets to the, the, the place he needs to do it, the very precipice, and he's so weak and just exhausted that he goes to, to turn. He goes to say, I can't do it, right? Basically, he quits. He doesn't have the strength to do it. And then it's Gollum, who's still a twisted character, but he's a symbol of grace and he's a symbol of mercy because he's received it again and again and again, who accidentally takes the ring and destroys it. See, Frodo, in his own strength, he couldn't do it. In our own strength, we can't save anybody. But it's God's grace and it's God's mercy that closes the deal. Thank goodness. That evangelism, reaching people, it isn't dependent on my strength. Thank goodness. But God does depend on our obedience. God does depend on our boldness and stepping out to do what he's called us to do. As Steph said earlier in worship, his grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in weakness. See, when we're called to go out and reach the nations for the gospel, it feels like a heavy weight. But man, once you start actually evangelizing, the gospel does all the heavy lifting. The spirit of God does all the heavy lifting. You're just being obedient. So God, we commit tonight. God, we commit to be people that will look up. God, that we don't want to be so consumed in our, in our spiritual journey that we don't look around at those people you're calling us 
to read. God, we commit to look at people and see them as you see them. God, people that you died for, people that you want to reach and you want to rescue. God, never let us write somebody off because they're a modern-day tax collector or they're a modern-day quote-unquote sinner. God, remind us that without your grace, we're in those shoes. So God, I pray that our response would be to worship you. Our response would be to honor you as King and Savior. But God, that our response would be to take our mandate and our great commission and to be obedient and to walk out in boldness, knowing that your grace doesn't just cleanse us, it doesn't like just call us, God, it equips us. And we thank you that it does the heavy lifting. We worship you, God. 